Hello all and welcome to Kino Kingdom 52 and this is our Bruce Willis special. We are the Willis Whisperers for one night only and uh, joining us is the person we always go to when there's some sort of tragic news, Laszlo Buckets. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to uh, join us and um, share his expertise on the topic at hand. Um, yeah, it's not so much, it's a bit of a sad one because obviously Bruce Willis is... Um, is retired now so we're just going to sort of go through uh some movies that we all really like that involve him and um maybe some hidden gems and then hopefully talk at length about return of bruno on vinyl and the singles respect yourself and um under the boardwalk both of which i own on vinyl don't you worry about that all I need now is my Jackie Chan albums and my Don Johnson heartbeat. <laughs> I'm sorted. I might might branch out to Jimmy Nail as well. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Crocodile Shoes. What was that other one? What was that one that I read? Hey, no doubt it's plain C. Yeah, I won that as well yeah. on vinyl. Wow. I didn't know Jackie Chan had done an album. Al- oh, Dave, you go on Disc- Discogs. You type in Jackie Chan. It's not an album. But he could have had a separate career as a singer. He's got loads going from the, I think, 70s. Wow, so it yes, doesn't surprise me. I've never heard them. I I don't want to listen to them. I want to just buy one on vinyl and just get into it. And hopefully it's Japanese disco. If there's a god, it'll be Japanese disco. Um, and not like a load of cover ballads because that would just be really dreary. <laughs> um, so take note, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is uh yeah, this is Kino Kino Fifty Two and. The Arkansas that we set out last time was to get from Eva Mendez to Donald Pleasance. Um, and I, I had I've had three successful routes routes from from the listeners and one failed one. Um, oh. But I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to read that one up. But it was someone it was funny because I had I had the message from them and it was oh, so and so was in. And then and, oh, it's gone. <laughs> just couldn't, Amazing. couldn't getting to donald is always the struggle so have you laszlo and rupert have you have you got successful I Arkansas? Have. oh nice I, okay I, yeah do you want me, me to go too. first i think i think you, you've beaten me but go ahead <laughs> you beat me That's already like <laughs> okay okay uh donald pleasance is in halloween six which i think is curse is it Anyway, I, I get confused. With Paul Rudd, who's in Endgame, not that one. With Samuel L. Jackson, who's in The Other Guys with Eva Mendes. Wow. Yeah. You beat me. Well done. Okay. So what I'm, was yours? I missed Halloween 6. That's where I went wrong. Mm. Yeah, that's one with Paul Rudd. That was the stumbling block for, for Regan, one of our listeners. He, he, he couldn't. You look, you couldn't do it, and then he looked it up afterwards and said, oh, "If I knew Paul Rudd, yeah, was there was that link." I watched it quite recently. I think it was just Donald Pleasant's last film, actually. Might even be it's, posthumously released. That's the it's ninety five, isn't it? That one, something like that. Yeah, I've got a feeling. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Paul, Paul Rudd probably just looks the same with just slightly more product Identical. in his hair back then. Yeah. 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 Does he mention when you watched Halloween Six? Did he mention me or like fancying me or anything like that in it? Um, I think it was on deleted scene on the extras, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably didn't see it was entirely and necessary. The extras, the DVD, we're like, it's like cut, and then Paul says, I'm just really sorry, just I can't stop thinking about Brit. 
it's really affected my, my delivery. So, uh, so Laszlo, what, um, what, what did you have from the Eva Mendes to Donald Pleasance route? Uh, similar on either end of it, but with more more levels in between. So I had Donald Pleasance <laughs> was in Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis, who was in True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in The Rundown uh, with The Rock, who was in The Other Guys with Eva Mendes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I lost count how many steps that is. I think that's about four, maybe five. Let's call it four. Let's call it four, yeah. All right. Have we got any other juicy ones? Sorry, I, I was on I was on mute then. Mm. I I've got responses from um Utah Smith, Max, and Transvaal, mm. and they are identical. <laughs> and it and it basically boils down to Eva Mendes is in Ghost Rider with Nicolas Cage. Mm. Nicolas Cage is in The Rock with Sean Connery. Sean Connery is in You Only Live Twice with Donald Pleasance. <laughs> yeah. All three of them. Boom. So, yeah. I thought that was, I don't, to be honest, I thought, because I never even tried to do these Arkansas. That's why I kind of like the routes people take. But I thought if, if Laszlo and Rupert both say that, that's like five people in unison in some sort of cult. The, the cult of the thorn from Halloween Six, in fact. Um, I can't remember if that if that storyline was picked up in the subsequent films. Oh no, it was dropped, wasn't it? It was dropped so fast. Yeah. Um, so it's time for Brucey Boy. Brucey Boy. Yeah, I've right. been looking forward to this. So yeah, R- Rupert, do you want to do you want to take the lead on this one? Yeah. Your, so we should be clear voice. that obviously this is not an obituary for Bruce Willis because he is very much still alive, but. He has retired from acting, so it's an obituary for his career, which is now over. So we're not going to be getting any more Bruce Willis films, except the eight in currently in production, <laughs> which are unreleased as yet. Um, but yes, uh, so we're just going to look back on Bruce's career. I thought I might start by um, just a quick rundown of, yeah, the phases of his career, because he's been around for... Well, it's over 30 years now, isn't it? So, um, yeah, he's, as we know, he started in the TV series Moonlighting, which was, as they say, a dramedy TV show mm. with Sybil Shepherd, um, which started in 1985. He was still in it during and after Die Hard, by the way. I didn't realise that. Anyway. I've, never, I've never seen a single episode of Moonlighting. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, it was very different to Die Hard, so which is why he was such a strange choice for John McClane. And Die Hard was actually a, a sequel to a, a Frank Sinatra film slash book from the 1960s. Uh, I think they, uh, Dave, sorry, Laszlo, you may know this. <laughs> um, Who's but Dave? Did they? <laughs> <laughs> Did they actually approach Frank Sinatra? Because I know they approached a thousand different actors before Bruce Willis for Die Hard, but I'm, I think I, they may have approached Frank Sinatra as well. They did. I, I think, yeah, I think I read something about it, that they attempted to make it seem as unappealing as possible to him. And <laughs> right. they, he, he, they contractually had to offer it. Right. They really didn't sell it very hard. And he passed and they said, great. Yeah, okay. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, amongst other people. Yeah, so until... Well, he would have been... I am just. I was just doing the math, by the way. Uh, 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 he would have been 72 at the time. Bruce Willis, he looked bloody brilliant. 
Um, <laughs> no, Sybil Shepherd. No, um, yeah, Frank Sinatra. You want to come back and do the film? He must have just thought, no, I'm just going to sit here and tremble slightly, thank you very much. <laughs> the thing is, the only other really high-profile film Bruce had done at that point was Blind Date, of course, but which is much closer to Moonlighting than, you know, the next film from John Predator McTiernan. But um, anyway, so just I am skating through his career. We're, obviously, we're going to pick up on a few key films, but uh, let's move on to the 90s output, because to me, this seems like a bit of a one in one out affair. <laughs> like for every hit, there seemed to be a flop. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of range, I suppose, you know, for every striking distance and last boy scout he had a he did kind of stick to his romantic and family friendly roots quite a bit for a while you know like look who's talking death becomes her and yes hudson hawk um but other there was some pretty high profile movies in the 90s like 12 monkeys the fifth element pulp fiction uh, and the aforementioned ones um but i would say that the decline really became noticeable in the 2000s because if you take out his work with M. Night Shyamalan, right? Um, then his biggest hits were really just rehashes or parodies of his own image with like Expendables and those diehard sequels where he literally plays a different character mm. and Sin City, where it's not so much a character as just a bad mood, really, isn't it? That film? But. Um, <laughs> The last 20 years, then, there have been, there's been a, a handful of gems, I'd say, uh, like Ryan Johnson's Looper and Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. But then even like really average stuff like 16 Blocks isn't really elevated by his presence. But he did do some great work with M. Night Shyamalan and especially Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. And he did have a final creditable performance in Glass. So he has that. But yeah, that's pretty much his career as far as, far as I can see. Any any general yeah. comments to make about? No, his no. I th- I think um yeah I think f- f- like for me um like you say if I first saw him in, in obviously Die Hard because my parents let me watch action films when I was very young because you know because they were they it was pretty much as long as there was no bonking or like people literally putting their hands in their mouths and forcing their faces inside out. They pretty much say, yeah, you can watch that. No, no one, no one says the F word. So I, my sort of um, re- relationship as a viewer with him started with Die Hard. And I do like Blind Date. It's got one of my favorite visual jokes in it. And then I'm just looking through. I feel like I should watch Bonfire of the Manatees. And it's interesting you mentioned Hudson Hawk because um uh, that's one of those films that i'm sure i watched and just thought you know back in the days when there were no you just you know you you're at home and you're just watching vhs tapes um and especially because i grew up with members of my family in a video store it was just putting just infinite films on and watching them with no guide as to like quality not understanding being too young to understand directors or anything like that and just watching Hudson Hawk, thinking oh, i enjoyed that <laughs> <laughs> um, um the last boy scout is one that i i do really really like um in his, his career although it's got some astonishing astonishing um scenes in it which we'll, we'll obviously go back and chat about um death becomes a yeah like you say all the 90s stuff the, i suppose he occupies a space in my mind really to, to sum it all up before we go into a bit of a deeper dive together he he was in my to my mind he was an action star and then 
And then in the 90s, he made a lot of films like that you say, I like a lot. And I've never seen 12 Monkeys, but I really like Fifth Element. And I watched Armageddon a lot when I was a teenager. It's not, it's not something that I'm drawn to now. But then as you get, as you say, in the 2000s, it was almost like he was sort of a has-been to me. Mm. Uh, you know and then and then there were a few films i saw him in like you say like lucky number 11 or 16 blocks and 16 blocks and most deaf voice actively irritated me in that film i really struggled <laughs> with that film but then you know and then it's like live free or die hard and I, I i remember quite liking surrogates but by then of course he grew his hair in a bit he had the beard and i just thought oh is this gonna be okay and then there was that huge thing with cop out about him being really and you know and and then it just became you know the expendables red mm. like you say he would just rock up in a couple of bits of cold light of day where where henry cavill survives the most unlikely fall and get and a shot in the kidney that i've ever seen um and then it's just like bitty things like he would rock up in films nothing yeah. that would he became someone that i you know whereas i would watch anything with kind of reason it was like it was too unreliable yes to, to really focus on so yeah the, the 80s and 90s were very much like my my time with him yeah how about you laszlo yeah i it, it's easy to like look like think of films with him in there's so many really really great films that it kind of overshadows the vast vast number of awful ones like it's i was just i made a little list of them and i just thought this is a hell of a filmography like he's got so die hard pop fiction 12 monkeys sixth sense fifth element sin city looper moonrise kingdom unbreakable i'm skipping some because i realized some of this list are really shit ones as well but um <laughs> last boy scout um and yeah, the die hard sequels of course yeah and all yeah except for the last couple. Yeah. I've kind of taken it for granted that he's always there. And and Mm. yeah, so it's a bit of a shame now to obviously know that we're not going to get one more great film out of him kind of thing. uh, Yeah. I suppose the, yeah, it was sad as we're not going to get a a renaissance, you know, like you do with certain actors. Matthew Mm. McConaughey is a famous example. Or even even like Arnie with Maggie or like Nick Nick Nolte when he came back with a few belters, you know, in his like late 60s. Yeah, like Warrior and stuff. Yeah, no, that's that's the pity, isn't it? Because there's nothing really there. He could have come back and just, yeah, even if it's just one last great performance uh, or a couple. Jack Nicholson did something similar, didn't he? mm. Was Pulp Fiction a kind of resurrection at that point mm. i can't remember if he was kind of i don't pretty in the doldrums and it gave him like a, in, an artistic kind of um integrity boost possibly I, I suppose it was just before dial with a vengeance wasn't it yeah but, so, but, but like laszlo said an artistic boost as opposed yeah. to like because i mean i i really really like color of night i think it's a wonderfully barbie film <laughs> But, oh, but it's then, bonkers, isn't it? I completely forgot about that. Oh North, which I think was one of the films you was it the first film you saw in the cinema room? Uh, it's no, it's the only film I ever saw with my dad in the cinema, mm. which isn't particularly relevant memory, but that's probably why I remember it because I wouldn't have remembered the film. I remember Elijah Wood being in it. Yeah, I'd forgotten Bruce Willis was in that. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember anything about it, and I, I think it was pretty forgettable. 
it, yeah, uh, but I think we've probably mentioned his his key films, but I do think looking at his filmography, it did. I mean, Looper, something like Looper or Moonrise Kingdom, because they're pretty much the last really kind of quality films that he was in. Yeah, you, you really like Moonrise. I still haven't seen it, but I remember you've been really taken by that. I one. really like that. And I do like Looper, but I'm not sure it's really, it's not really his film. It's more, it's more, um, Joseph, Gordon Joseph Gordon-Levitt's, like, yeah. more of his it's, film. I re- uh, actually revisited that, and, and that was the impression, yes, that I came away with, that is, mm. he kind of gets sidelined in the second half of that film. yeah yeah i don't i don't is he in it at all in the second half i don't remember he, he is there's a bit where he shoots up a bunch of guys right. in a very bruce willisy way but he's not in it that much yeah there's a really good scene where he has to kill a kid literally and he kind of walks out of it and you know he doesn't really want to do it but he he believes that that kid will become a, a bad guy as an adult and kill lots of people including bruce willis's wife and he kind of walks away from this house and you can tell he's like on the edge of breaking down just from the way he's walking. And then he kind of gets around the corner and properly collapses in kind of horror mm. of himself. And it's a really nice understated bit of late um, Bruce Willis acting in a film where you don't really expect him to have to do that much other than shoot guns at people. Mm, yeah. His um, acting in Death Wish wasn't quite as understated, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, he was definitely committed. I, mean, I I wonder if that could have been another route for him out of straight to streaming doldrums who would possibly be doing like weird, extreme like exploitation movies or bonkers experimental films in a kind of Nick Cage way, you know, like you'll just like do some pretty balmy stuff like Mandy and things like that. That could have been another option. But I feel it towards the end of his career is definitely quantity over quality. And I suppose yeah. fair enough. I mean, if he knew, uh, you could speculate, but I don't know if he knew something was up, then maybe he just wanted to pump out as much as possible. Yeah. I know somebody told me a story about Gary Oldman, not long after he got his Oscar, that he had a, it was a two day role on a film where he got paid five million pounds. <laughs> and they just dragged him from set to set and just got as much as they could with him like in each place so they could put him on the poster and, and make yeah. sure he had a huge part in it. And apparently at one point on set, he went for a piss and the producers like were talking to each other saying, this piss is costing us £30,000 right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine Bruce Willis is in a similar position where he can just like, they go, yeah, it's five million quid for two days work. He's like, yeah. yes. Sign me up. <laughs> you imagine Gary Oldman when they're like they say to him through the door, "Oh, this that piss is costing us thirty thousand pounds." And then he said, "Well, you're not going to like this." And you just hear the sound of unbuckling and a magazine going under an armpit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've seen that film by the way with Gary Oldman. <laughs> I think <laughs> one where he just puts on a Russian accent and just sits in a hotel room constantly eating lunch on the phone. Um, in, in um, they probably filmed his lunch break. I mean, you would, <laughs> wouldn't they? That way. Yeah. Key scene in um, Man Down, the Shia LaBeouf one, which is quite good. In that, he is literally behind a desk the entire film because he's just interviewing him. So it's just him sat behind a desk. 
So what would you say is your apart from Die Hard, what is what is the key Brucey Boy film? I really do like I really do like The Last Boy Scout. Okay. But because there's something about it, because it's got a bit of everything in it for the, for the action lover me, the way it starts off and he's just in his car, just and there's and a lot of the kids throw like a dead rat at him, and he's just constantly bumbling about with like really like fluffy hair, smoking fags, and just getting beaten up, and of course that's the film where Damon Wayans, a recently retired at the peak of his career quarterback from a standing position throws a punch downwards at Bruce Willis's face, an alcoholic private detective with a bag in his mouth as he sat leaning back and Bruce Willis catches his fist mid-punch and stands up and pushes Damon Wayans over on the floor with one hand. With one hand. And I think, brilliant. Like that, this is, like that to me is more impressive than all of Pacific Rim. That's, that's where I want and uh, yeah, and I just thought it's got it's got the buddy comedy thing, which I'm a total sucker for, and um and and it's watching it, you know, it's it's quite it's quite misjudged in in its humour and the way his daughter is just like really foul mouthed. So it's it's like oddly black and dark, but mm. then it's also got the scene where um he kills someone because they won't let this fag properly. So I don't I don't know what more is expected from mainstream Hollywood, to be honest. Did Shane Black write that? I don't know. I, I just got that in my head. All right. Okay. Yeah, well, that makes yeah. sense of all of these things, I suppose. It's like, yeah. It, yeah, it's part of a sort of unofficial trilogy of those kind of slightly yeah. scuzzy crap PIs get roped into <laughs> stuff kind of like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and um, the nice guys. The, the nice guys. Yeah. 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 That's that actually that you know you said that that makes sense. They're the perfect Shane Black trilogy. That 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 to me would be a bloody good evening. Yeah, that is good actually. So Laszlo, what what would you say is your key, Brucey performance? Oh God, that is a tough because he's had there's like different versions of him, isn't there? Yeah, there's yeah. Like this sort of silent but violent one, and then there's the kind of thoughtful kind of schlub ones, and then there's like the the big exuberant ones so i don't for the sake of being picking a different choice from brit i will go for hudson hawk and i rewatched this one by the way dave you uh, sorry laszlo you were literally just describing farts then (laughs) i just want to throw that in there dashed back from pouring a wine the schlubby (laughs) monosyllabic (laughs) fart yeah and the big epic ones with a crescendo and of course the silent but violent Mm. Some with hair. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> some, some, if you do it from a squatting position with your hands behind you, can sound like owl hoots. <laughs> Hudson Hawk, that even could be a, a sort of a fart. <laughs> Profanosaurus entry. Um, but that film, like, is probably the most Bruce Willis of the actual person because he he like wrote mm. that didn't he he came up with the story yeah. and uh, i think somebody else wrote most of the script but he then it wasn't a joke it wasn't funny it was meant to be like a bond film and then he wanted it to be funny and wrote in all the jokes and the singing and all of that stuff it's and even like his hat and that you just think he's just dressed himself for this film as well yes <laughs> yeah so um that's 
that's the most unrestrained Bruce I think you'll get it's pure for injection of Bruce <laughs> it, it does it does tie in with them um, like I know talking earlier about the return of Bruno but I'm wondering if if we're trying to find like the, the definitive Brucey if you think about like from blind date to I'm just looking at you know the bonfire of the vanities, Hudson Hawk, look who's talking, Die Hard Two, all of that stuff. Death becomes it. Uh, I haven't seen Striking Distance, in which he plays a character actually called Tom Hardy. Yes. Um, but <laughs> up to like almost like up to Pulp Fiction, it's there's that roguish charm. There's that yes. sort of this the Brucey smirk, and I'm wondering when the Brucey smirk leaves. Yeah, I know what you mean because you do see. Well, uh, I mean, I'll. Talk about the whole nine yards in a bit, but he's still got a bit of it then, and that's 2000. I think this kind of ties into uh, his core appeal because I was thinking about this like, what is it? Like, he's obviously a movie star, what, and they tend to have a core appeal that kind of connects all, all, or at least their key performances. And I think if you if you look at his kind of hangdog face, especially in his later films, there's this kind of sadness and brokenness behind the masculinity. So I think broken masculinity is the thing that, for me, seems to pull all these movies together. Because if you think about, I mean, you think about his Shyamalan roles, where he, he pl- in both in both Unbreakable and Sixth Sense, he plays like an archetypal masculine role, either a father or a protector. And, and in both, he's like wearing his grief like a shroud and then of course you've got like john mcclain who's who's a real hero but also can't keep his marriage alive and can't stop drinking and then last boy scout this burly broken pi with a heart and then pulp fiction who's he's a killer with a conscience and of course is hopeless romantic so it's like yeah i think it's this uh it's this sort of broken or corrupted masculinity i think that's what it is that's a good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah as as opposed to with um, with with um, Tom Cruise, we were talking about how it's that uh, the the underdog that sort of come like loses his uh, loses the confidence and builds it back up. Yeah, with a winning Cruise smile. Is yeah. like cockiness, learning a lesson in humility, and then building confidence. So that that's like his arc, isn't it? And then you got someone like Harrison Ford, who's like a curmudgeonly grouch with a moral core, that kind of thing. And I, yeah, so I do think with Bruce Willis, yeah, his key roles seem to be defined by that. It's funny you say, because thinking about it, even, like you say, the key roles, even the fifth element has, has a touch of that. Or, mm. yeah, well, that's, that's a good call. But, yes, his smirk, well, it seemed to, it, like... It seemed to disappear around the time he started working with M. Night Shyamalan, I guess, because <laughs> um, because there, for me, his key role, I don't know whether it's Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, but I think I think it's his best work, the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, because uh, they're such internalised kind of things. But I think Sixth Sense especially, he's so good in that, at... Um, kind of internalizing a lot of his grief and stuff i think it's a really skillful performance it's not very showy but it's really good so i think he could have done more of that sort of stuff if he found 
and good directors to work with, but maybe it, that was the problem. Maybe he'd stop working with good directors. You think about the people he was working with in the 90s, 80s and 90s, like McTiernan and uh, Luke Besson and what, Tarantino, etc. And then Shyamalan and then, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose what you just said ties in with what Laszlo said in terms of that that scene in Looper. It, it that was you know, r- retrospectively that was pulled out to a full film with the sixth sense that internalized yes. grief and yeah. struggle. Yeah, yeah. The more we talk about it, the more I realize how sad it is that we're not going to get that final. He's going to come out and 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 do something. This yeah, but um, yeah, I, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know what directors he's worked with the last few years. I think I directed one of his films. <laughs> I think, like, was he smirky in Red and Red Two? I was just skimming through his CV. Yeah, I, I, I watched I watched Red, and I remember thinking it was cool. Like, you know, the, the oldies get back in and kick ass. I watched some of Red Two the other day, and Joel Markovich is quite funny in it, but it's. It's it's a it's a joke too far. Uh, I, I think the problem with Red too was with Red was just you know it, it's sort of like taken but with a comedy streak where it's like they're, they're really kick ass but they're a bit older. But then you go to Red two and it's just trying to repeat the formula and it's but they've got the idea of bigger is better and the way it starts off with him and his young sort of French mistress and he's really downtrodden but he loves it and it's just no it's too complicated now it's too silly it, you're just pushing one joke through an entire 90 minute film uh, so but he, he it is still that sort of smoky shruggy oh here I am again sort of thing that is still there are there any actual hidden brucey gems that people might not have seen um well allow me to scroll back through his filmography i mean obviously he's such a big film star it's such a well if anyone's seen striking distance i wouldn't mind if they emailed it the men <laughs> the men who talk at outlook.com just so i can know if it's good or not because i've never seen it i saw it when in the 90s uh, is is it the one with Sarah Jessica Park? Is that her yeah. name? Sarah Jessica yeah, Park. Sarah Jessica Park. With it on on a speedboat, I think. Yeah, I remember it not really being an action movie. Spoiler. Is that the one with a kid who has a code in their head? No, that's, that's Mercury, Mercury Rising. Rising. That uh, is ridiculous. That film. It's not very good either. But um, yeah. Have either of you seen Cop Out? I was no. wondering if that's as bad as as Kevin Smith says. No, I I haven't seen it. No, I've seen it. I, I suppose going back a blind date, I'd be like, if if people have got to know Brucey through Die Hard, I think Blind Date is is I don't know how well it stands up, but but it's got some really really funny set pieces in it. I remember it being a good farce, it, you know, in the way that something like Whole Nine Yards is a good farce. Yeah, well, it was written by Blake Edwards, wasn't it? So oh, well, that makes the sense. The Pink Panther film. So, um, and then yeah, I'm just scrolling. I'm surprised. I'm surprised Blind Date. I didn't never realize that came out before Die Hard. I assume yeah. Die Hard was kind of his first film. No, uh, I think he did a cut. He did another one. Mm-hmm. He did Blind Date, and then he did maybe a, a western or something. But probably Sunset. Yeah, uh, and but I, I'd say it's not really hidden, Jim. But I mean, Death Becomes a doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves. It's actually a really, really funny film, and it's really dark, and it's a good kind of like weird family-friendly horror really <laughs> so it's pretty cool and it had some pretty cool special effects at the time 
Yeah, the scene where she's who's the woman who's behind all it's not the two main stars, it's another one with like short, like a really severe black bob haircut. Uh, doesn't sound very nineties. And she and she offers she offers him, I think his name is Ernest in it or Ernie or something. Yeah. And she offers him this like elixir of immortality and he's like really eagerly reaching out to it and then goes, No, 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 wait, wait. What if I get bored? And <laughs> it's such a brilliant yeah. But other that's the thing, the, the, there is there is a range there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's good at comedy, yeah, and he's kind of pathetic in that movie, so that was quite fun to watch. Uh any would you say there are any hidden gems for you, Laszlo? Um, I I I don't know. It's, I I think feel like Color of Night is an underseen film that is very enjoyable. Not <laughs> necessarily yeah, because yes. it's good. It is very enjoyable. It's possibly the most preposterous film I've ever seen. But yes, it's amusing and it's pure nineties as well, isn't it? Really? Yeah, and it's actually got like nineties car chases and stuff. You know, where you're like, oh, they've spent a bit of money on this, and 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 then it has just yeah. I remember listening to your review and, and laughing a lot when you were talking about her disguise. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> and I was like, are you seriously meant to believe? I know. That everyone believes that she's a guy? Like, or is, are they all humouring her? It's not clear. I don't know. It is amazing. I've got to say, though, that there was, um, when I was watching, there's a scene in that film, and it's Scott Bakula, who, to me, is like the, the perfect, like, a man physique. It's a proper, like, he's got this, like, perfect torso chest head and, like, a real run, lean runner's physique. And, the, and they go cycling in it, and, and then yeah. they go back to the house, and they're in the pool, and they're drinking cocktails. And I thought, if they started kissing now, I probably wouldn't mind, to be honest. <laughs> like, there's, there's two, like, really, like, perfect men just, just getting it on. I, I would love it. Um, but yeah, watching it now, I watched it for the first time last year, and I, I thought people were saying, "Oh, Brett, you have to watch this. This like <laughs> this erotic thriller starring." I was like, "Really?" But no, it, it's 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 so like oddly misguided in 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 its approach and the way that they act as um like what what are they like psych, not psych what are they called like um therapists it's, it's like just a, yeah. It's, it's, it's astonishing the way they drink. I'm sure at one point they're just like drinking, like facing yeah. away from them as, as someone's crying and they're just openly drinking in their office or something. Like, what? <laughs> Maybe in LA. <laughs> yeah. So, is it meant to be like a Hitchcock thing as well? Doesn't it end up like the finale is on like a tower where there's like yeah, danger of yeah. them falling yeah. off it? And... It's really windy and yeah, there's like a lightning yeah. storm. Yeah. The Brilliant. fact that they even toyed with the idea of making it like a Hitchcock-esque film makes it even funnier yeah. in how awful it is. It's, I've got to forget, but, but wonderfully awful. Um, yeah, like, yeah. Like, I, I really, it is so enjoyable because it's just there is well, some how films, it ever got made. How yeah, And that's the thing, isn't it? With that budget, like it's just got car chases in it. It's got like really eloquently filmed sex scenes in it. It's got everything. Um, it's got Scott Battle with his top off, so I'm involved. Um, but then when you it's one of those films as well that when we talk about certain films on the podcast that I've seen before I, oh, even recently I, I think I could watch that again tonight yeah I, I could let check it on tonight um yeah. I where's Jane March now I know right she, she was I might look it up um <laughs> I I did have a, a look through his filmography and I, I did pick out just three films that I think maybe worth digging out 
I haven't seen them, and I'm guessing you haven't seen them either. But there was one he made between Die Hard and Look Who's Talking called In Country, which is a pretty well-regarded PTSD drama directed by Norman Jewison, who we talked oh, about last time, did yeah. Rollerball and In the oh, Heat of the Night. So that could be interesting. It's meant to be pretty good. There was the one he did in 1984 called Nobody's Fool, which is a comedy drama uh, where, where he co-stars with Paul Newman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Melanie Griffith, uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince, and that's very highly rated, so that might be worth having a look at. And, of course, there's Billy Bathgate, which no one seems to have seen, which is... A baseball film. No, that's... You might be thinking of Bull Durham. This Billy Bathgate was a gangster film from 91. Um, But interestingly, this was adapted from a novel... Well, it was adapted by Tom Stoppard uh, from a novel, not his novel. But he... Tom Stoppard's a playwright, mostly but he did also write terry gilliam's brazil so that's he's right yeah that's right all. yeah so he's a talented writer anyway so this was it was a big budget movie and it was pretty well received but totally flunked to the box office so billy bathgate might be worth looking at as well just mm. to flesh out the brucey the brucey yeah. legacy i remember billy bathgate coming out oddly but i have never seen it so i will will dig that one out i mean it doesn't sound like a gangster film does it (laughs) it sounds like yeah like it sounds like a sports movie doesn't it really yeah it sounds like an off-brand child safety gate more than anything else (laughs) oh what are you doing out you're smoking and drinking oh don't worry i got the billy bath gate that he's all right (laughs) why do they call films just by a generic name who are they appealing to it's like John Carter. Who wants mm. to watch a film called John Carter? Doesn't it's literally yeah. meaningless? Oh mm. well, who wants to watch Forrest Gump? That didn't make any money. All right, yeah. But no, I know what you mean. I was I, too I, busy. <laughs> Forrest Gump. I was la- I laughed about at the cinema. I was too busy watching Gummo. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Tom Hanks could be in a film called Anything at that point, and it would have made cash it would have made bank um so yeah i think that's anything else to say about brucey well yeah just before we do move on from from him um and then spend the next hour talking about bruce forsyth i just wondered what we would say is we've talked about your the, the films that shaped us in terms of his career do you have a brucey moment in Looper, you know, that moment in Looper where yeah. he sort of collapses. And I'm just thinking about moments that stand out as opposed to films or eras. Uh, well, I'll go with the Shyamalan and say, I think a really good piece of acting is where he goes to have dinner with his wife in Sixth Sense and sits down and has a monologue. And it's just really, really sad. And she walks away. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good bit, bit of acting. That's the one that springs to mind. Yeah. And the ending, of, and the ending of Unbreakable. But I think that's more to do with the direction of the music. So. Yeah. There's bits, yeah, in Unbreakable when he, he ushers, like he's urging his kid to keep it a secret when the kid works out that he's yeah. like the hero. It's like a nice bit of non-verbal. Yeah father-son acting yeah yeah isn't it like a bit where they're in the, the kitchen the mother's facing away and then the kid like turns the newspaper around and bruce yeah. willis is like have an egg and his, his eyebrows pop up a little bit like, oh, I'm yeah. Oh. yeah 
Yes. I, I so, think. Um, oh, I are, we, are we moving on from Bruce Willis? Because I, I sat through two films of his that I hadn't seen before. Oh, yeah. In preparation for this, so I don't the know. The fact that I... you'd said you described it as sitting through. <laughs> <laughs> Die Hard 4.0 and Live Free or Die Hard. <laughs> or is it a good day to Die Hard? I can't remember which one's which. That doesn't matter. Make me watch the fifth one again. <laughs> no. I literally don't think I can. <laughs> no. um, but one of them was really good. There's a genuine recommendation. Oh. But but he's not in it very much. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Okay. What's the other called? one he's in a lot, but it's bad. Well, uh, well, come on, you've got, to, you've got to tell us. This could be the seeg into the, um, you know, the actual um, reviewing part of the podcast. Okay, so the the bad one that I watched is called Once Upon a Time in Venice, which came out <laughs> in 2017, which is actually a longer ago than his recent really, really bad bunch of films. But I was determined to watch one of the bad ones in, you know, in honour of his recent work there's so many of his films on rotten tomatoes with zero percent by the way i don't know if you've looked <laughs> he hasn't made one that's etched above 30 something in the last oh three four years but anyway this one this is a real is... celebration of his career isn't it this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but he is, is trying in this film which is what surprised me he's in it the, for the whole film and i watched it on plex which is if you thought that other streaming service was bad. This is a new one. Well, they're recruiting the worst streaming service. This is, yeah. what's this? Plex. Plex. It's, you can, it's widely available and it's free, which is weird, but it is powered by adverts instead yeah. of. Oh, uh, right. So you have to sound, with adverts. Could be a bit too close to the Savalas for my taste. It also, they're, going, they're obviously trying to go straight because I think Plex has previously been associated with streaming of a more um uh questionable variety should we say adult films no not adult films but more like uh please dave we're adults with this podcast cockies (laughs) (laughs) i'm thinking i'm thinking new films that perhaps aren't quite ready for um uh Consum- legal release legal nice. consumption yeah are you telling me that they are only available in the small northern welsh town of itligatli <laughs> yes. i i think i gotta say as well that like um plaques if um it sounds like something i'd put on what was that like qvc and mm. someone would hold up a jug and say you're probably wondering if this is plastic or is it glass well it's actually made of plaques which means <laughs> that you can put it in your microwave but it'll melt <laughs> Um, so what's it called yeah. again? Once upon a time in Venice. Once upon a time in Venice, but that's not Venice, uh, Italy. That's um, uh, Venice, Venice Beach. Beach. It? Yes, of course it is. Written and directed by the Cullen brothers, who wrote Cop Out. Oh. Ooh. So you know it's here in for a And that reeks of contractual obligation, doesn't it? <laughs> is it? Is it a comedy? But yeah, this is it's it's like an action comedy, both in with quote marks, and he it's like he plays like a really ill-defined private detective who's a tough guy but also a stoner and a skateboarder, and it, 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 they don't really know it's Bruce Willis doing random stuff. But there's like an extended sequence where he's skateboarding naked 
holding a gun. Oh. It's quite wacky. Um, oh but it's got like a surprisingly good cast. It's like it's got John Goodman in it and Jason Momoa and Franka Janssen and, and then a bunch of cameos from other Bruce Willis chums, I guess. Um, <laughs> But he's he's he laughs and 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 seems to be enjoying himself throughout the film, <laughs> even if the audience isn't. <laughs> I'm not going to watch a film. A few th- a few qualifying phrases you said there, Laszlo. Is um, I watched a film Bruce Willis and and he was in it. He was in the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like right, okay, that's again. This is like Ed Sheeran like writing his own songs, and and, and, and then oh yeah, I watched him and he seems he got his pals and he's having a nice time. <laughs> okay, we're not, but he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and every, it goes for everyone because John Goodman is like laughing away, and it and you're like you will never laugh watching this film, but he is in hysterics in most scenes. Uh, yeah, is he flipping bad. through the script at the time whilst also looking at his checkbook? There's a scene where like Bruce Willis gets knocked out, and then when he wakes up, he's been dressed in drag, and he's got lipstick on. He's been tortured by this cross-dressing muscle man. It's mm. yeah, it's an odd one. That but, sounds like it'd be funny in like 1975. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It feels like a film from a, a different era right. and a, maybe a different planet. I'm not sure, but but what I did also notice is it's like whilst he's kind of the main character, there's also this like crappy nerdy comedy kid who's his his protege, who's also like the dual protagonist, and they don't really meet each other very often. And the kid just provides a voiceover explaining why Bruce Willis has turned up at this flat or he's turned up in a garage or whatever. And I got the feeling like. They weren't sure whether Bruce Willis was going to turn up. <laughs> so they've got this backup kid who they can film with in between. And he will explain away why Bruce right. Willis is just randomly popping up in places when Bruce Willis isn't available. Oh my anyway, God. it's kind so, of worth a watch. And, and then it has like this massive sequel cliffhanger at the end where you're like, what? oh, dear. That's that's not gonna happen, guys. Sorry. It's it's always yeah. It's it's never good when it really opens itself up for a sequel, and you're thinking, given what I've just watched, given that I'm the only one watching it, <laughs> this is not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, a, it's a, it is a it's a bit plex, of a curse, isn't it? Check it out. <laughs> so I I think maybe this is a new thing in streaming because I know IMDb. It, it's, it's got something similar where you can watch films for free, but they come with ads. So it's probably a good alternative, I suppose, if you can't find stuff elsewhere. Yeah, it, it may fit in in, in a very specific um, compartment of my life where I really enjoy staying in hotels and in like caravans where you have limited TV choice. I don't know what it is where I really enjoy like yeah. staying in a hotel and you just you have to just put on whatever's on you have to yeah. deal with the if there's two like breaks for news and, and adverts then and it's heavily cut and you know you're watching robocop and it's only eight minutes long so be it there's some <laughs> there's something about that that really appeals to me so. i know and it's a bit of a blast from the past isn't it like we're having that limitation on you i remember staying in a hotel for it was for three nights and it had such limited channels i watched shop girl with steve martin three times <laughs> Three nights in a row. When Amazing. You, when you, you say it, it was 
it was a hotel with limited choice. Do you mean it was a time machine with one button that said two hours ago on it? <laughs> yeah, I think it was actually a Blu-ray player with my copy of Shop Girl in it. <laughs> uh, it at least would be easier to understand than watching Primer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that was that was the one that was he was in it a lot, but it was bad. bad. Yeah. So what, yeah. what was the other one, Laszlo? So the other one, I don't know if you guys might have seen this, Motherless Brooklyn. Oh, is this the Ed Norton one? Ed Norton yes, yes, yes. I haven't seen this thing. So he it's misleading the advertising for this one because they kind of made out that he was like second billing on a few things I saw beforehand, and he is not in it for long. And I. You know, he just he just walked away from he, d- he didn't die. Oh, spoiler! Oh, oh, I've blown it. Never mind. He's not in it for very long, um, and it's not a great. Apparently, this was his last theatrical release. Um, oh God! Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, in the US anyway, I guess. Um, but yes, he's not. He's in it for the first few scenes as a kind of a mentor to Edward Norton's character. Um, but it feels the beginning is quite badly done and it feels kind of the jarring editing and it, it, i was like oh this is gonna suck and and it feels like his scene is cobbled together in the edit a little bit it's a bit not okay. not a great swan song but but once he's no longer in the film it, it, it kind of takes flight weirdly and it's actually really quite a good film i really enjoyed it. I, I was really intrigued about what you're going to say then, because this is one that, because um, this was a real passion project for Ed Norton, and I, and I, I realised, God, I haven't seen Ed Norton in a film for a long time, because I think he did a lot of theatre uh, for a few years, and because of the setting and the, the jazz music in it, I was drawn to it, and I watched it, and I can't remember it too much it was it was about 18 months ago that i watched it i think but i did quite enjoy it but i know what you mean about it's the way bruce willis enters and exits is 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 almost like he was there to possibly get more of a budget in like Mm. we can say he's in it so then we can you know the producers will pump up Mm -hmm. a bit more cash and then we can actually get to the meat of the story which is ed norton walking around swearing and uh, listening (laughs) to jazz music yeah I think because because it did take him like 10 odd years to get this thing made. It makes you wonder if like he met him on Moonrise Kingdom or whatever and, and mm. thought he'd be perfect for that dream project that I have in mind. And yet it took 10 years to come together, at which point Bruce Willis is was acting wasn't really what it used to be. And uh, mm. so it's a bit of a shame. But but yeah, I, worth a watch, I'd say, for the film itself. It's kind of it's quite offbeat and quite interesting style wise and um and it's got some nice performances from people like uh um oh god what's his name who just shot someone alec baldwin, um, alec baldwin. just shot yeah. someone. <laughs> <laughs> oh you know the one he just shot someone on set yeah for real yeah. imagine going up to his wife and like no i was working alec, oh, don't get me bloody started <laughs> Yeah, who's that bloke? He just shot someone. That's it. That's who he is now, isn't it? All of the work on 30 Rock, gone. (laughs) Beetlejuice, (laughs) forgotten. Fair game, out the window. (laughs) Backdraft, oh no, that was the other one. (laughs) This explains why... Oh no, that was Steve. (laughs) I just realised this is why Hunt for the Red October seems to be on every streaming service at the moment, isn't it? They must be like cashing in on his new found notoriety or something 
<laughs> I've noticed there's a few Bruce, Brucey Boy films which seem to be um, rising up the charts as well. Yeah. Um, did you say, Laszlo, that you'd you watched the whole nine yards recently? Well, I've watched half of it. Okay. I've been watching it whilst exercising, so I haven't finished it, but I'm okay. halfway through. Oh, so okay. Maybe you can finish it off. <laughs> well, I won't go into any spoilers, but have you seen it before? Because I no. know I know Brett has. So yeah, so this this was made in 2000, and it's um this plot heavy hitman farce thing. It's utterly absurd. But and it's got twists upon twists, but it does give it a kind of energy. So uh, so it stars Matthew Perry as this wealthy dentist who's desperate to divorce his awful wife, played by Rosanna Arquette. Um, and then Bruce Willis, who's a hitman, moves in next door and it triggers a series of ridiculous events that will see various characters trying to kill each other for various selfish reasons. And in the middle of it all is Matthew Perry, who upsets the whole dynamic by basically being too nice to murder. Um, but anyway, there's $10 million at stake. And uh, I found this to be, it had a bit of gross point blank about it, a bit of the sharpness of that, and some of that kind of noir coolness of like out of sight. Not really as good as either of those films, but, and part of that, the reason for that, especially the out of sight comparison, is that Matthew Perry and Natasha Henstridge <laughs> do not have the Clooney Lopez chemistry, put it that way. Uh, if that's what you're after, you need to watch Three to Tango, mate. <laughs> um, I, I, I've got to that point where they've just met, and I was like, mm. oh, they're setting this up as going to be a thing, isn't it? It's, yeah, I thought, because when I saw, convincing. when I first saw that, yeah, when they first met, and I was thinking, okay, well, this is just commit double cross, surely, but uh, no, actually, they are actually quite into each other. Um, yeah, and what she would, whereas what she would say is, oh, well, that's interesting. It's just face and then gullet. <laughs> um, at least he looks healthy still at that point, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this must have been between massive weight loss periods, I suppose. Um, it does. I'd say that as a comedy, it does feel very different to the that that wave of comedies that came in the 2000s, like the kind of bad taste, improvisational type. Do you, you know, know what? It's funny, Stiller, it's funny you should say that. Even, because uh, it released in around 2000, I don't know if you remember this, there's a film, and I saw it in a charity shop on the weekend, mm. called Big Nothing, with, um, what was David Schwimmer and oh, yeah. Simon Pegg? Mm. And that's a really, like, full-on, like, black comedy. Yeah. And, and, and let you, I'll, I'll let you carry on. But, yeah, I, it, I think... It's because it's quite a bright film, isn't it? Um, the whole nine yards, and yes, and, and, and it's very much based on slapstick. Yes, uh, it's very, very much about. Yeah, there's a lot of physical comedy, and and I think Matthew Perry is well cast actually because he's a really good physical comedian. There's a bit. I know you've got <laughs> some favourite scenes. <laughs> yes. Um, of his physical comedy, but there's a bit where. He's being led back to this hotel room 
by Michael Clark Duncan. Duncan is obviously massive. He walks into the hotel room and Bruce Willis is waiting for him in a chair. And Matthew Perry just spins around to run out of the room and slams against Michael Clark Dun- Duncan and just bounces off him and falls and stumbles really awkwardly behind the sofa. I just thought it's it's such well done physical comedy. Like uh, I can only think of like someone like Jim Carrey can do that sort of stuff as well. But anyway, mm. that was brilliant. And I do think Bruce Willis is actually really well cast in this because he's channeling those key skills of his, like that the charm and the brawn and that deadpan humour. And it's a reminder that Bruce was good at comedy, you know? Like mm-hmm. and in good range in comedy, like we talked about Death Becomes a but actually if you look at his filmography, he did drift away from comedy. Uh I mean I suppose he I think he won an Emmy for his work on Friends, which I never found that funny. But but he did. He tended to settle into tough guy roles or parodies of himself. Mm. And I'm wondering, maybe he just wasn't suited to the kind of unscripted comedies that I mentioned that became the standard in the 2000s. Because when he was doing these old fashioned farces like Blind Date and uh, Whole Nine Yards, then he was he was good. I think he worked really well. The, the scene. The scene in Blind Date where he's trying to sneak onto the property that um, Kim Basinger lives, and I, I can't remember who it is. I think it, it's not it's not Casey. It's someone, Hal Halbrook maybe, playing golf in his own garden, mm. and he hits a golf ball at the trees, and you just hear Bruce Willis go, <laughs> and then he falls out and like lands on his back, and then Hal Holbrook like squints and leans forward, and Bruce Willis stands up and goes, shit. And then, like, looks around this open field he's clearly visible in, tries to climb up the tree and falls down and then just runs into the woods is a moment that will live with me forever. As if, as if he might not have been seen at any point. Yeah, I haven't I, seen that film since I was a child, but no. you just saying that has instantly brought the image back to me. I remember it's, fanta- it's fantastic. Again, it's just and it, you need to do more of it. And I have to say it, <laughs> the whole nine yards where... Matthew Perry, the the scene in that film, the defining scene for me, when Matthew Perry realizes he's Jimmy the Tulip, this like hitman, and then he's like, right, well, it's great to meet you as my new neighbor. I'm just gonna dash off, just gotta go back to the house, and, and he's yeah, and, and then he's like, are you nervous at all? No, no, just uh, I can hear the phone ringing, I think, and, and he sort of just goes through these sliding doors, gives like a little wave, and then turns around, and Bruce Willis puts like the orange juice down and frowns slightly, and then just lifts up, lifts up the curtain, and Matthew Perry is caning it across the field between the houses doing that like when it's such a fierce run such heavy-footed run that you know the head jerks slightly bobs to one side it's such a dedicated run it's only a few seconds long but i remember fast forward uh, rewinding that and watching it a few times and well funnily enough i i'd say about three or four episodes ago now i, I asked the question of modern as in the last quarter of a century modern physical comedy and and you get like you know your jim carries and so on but I think there are films like with Matthew Brown, like the whole nine yards where if you want good physical comedy, you it's, it's tough. It's really tough because yeah. it's very easy to kind of over egg it and it's just not funny. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to think of. And it's just not the style of comedy that's popular at the, at the moment or has been for the last two decades, basically really. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you think of like even the silliest kind of comedies, like, you know 21 jump street or something it's not really physical it's not physical comedy really is it it's more about pulling faces and uh, and improvising lines and stuff kind yeah. of thing and special effects 
Mm, Instead of physical comedy, they'll just blow something up instead. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, whole nine yards is is good. I'm guessing the whole ten yards is not good, but who knows? I've got a feeling that I've seen it multiple times in the in the hope because I enjoyed the nine the whole nine yards so much. I watched the whole ten yards, and the fact that I'm still not sure if I've seen it speaks volumes. <laughs> I, I've got a feeling I've watched it about four times. I thought, no, this is crap. This is why I don't watch it. It didn't feel like it needed a sequel. Gotta say, a lot of films don't. A lot no, of films don't. don't but <laughs> but yes. Except Day, for uh, Once sorry. Upon a Time in Venice. <laughs> which, <laughs> which, um, which is actually set in Venice. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Laszlo, yes, I would. It's It does maintain, if you're enjoying it so far, it does maintain the quality to the end. So. Right. I will finish it off. Can I quickly talk about Night Visions? Not that one. <laughs> There's more than one. Yeah, I was say, yeah. yeah there, well, in the same year, there's in 1997 there was Wes Craven's Night Visions, and there was when I watched it in 1997 Night Vision, which is directed by none other than Gil Batman, written by Thomas yeah. Michael Thomas Montgomery, and stars Fred Williamson. Uh, for those out there wondering, oh Fred Williamson, that rings a bell. He was the bloke smoking a cigar in. From Dust Till Dawn. I hope that clears up for you. Well, I didn't. I put this on because it said Fred Williamson, you know, Amazon Prime. Obviously, it's a Prime app. Click, boom, sat down, open the wine. And um, I didn't know who the female was on the cover because obviously, being made in the mid 90s, it was a drawing. So I just, I just thought, well, I don't know who that is. It's just some woman that Fred Williamson is probably going to show his feet to at some point. And it's such an awful low budget film. Uh, it starts off and there's someone called the the stalker who was driving around in a van and secretly filming on obviously VHS tapes um, pretty women um, having affairs, splicing together this sort of greatest hits of their cheating and then killing them and throwing them in front of police stations. Uh, obviously, when Fred Williamson, who's like this uh, this sort of beat cop who everyone says, can you just stop drinking and do some actual policing? Which is, to be honest, what I would have said if I was if I was the chief of police to everyone in that police station, because I watched this film and at no point was there any actual police work going on. They kick it, they kick each other in the face, they smoke bags, they they races to each other. There's probably not a photocopier in the building. There's like there's just wandering around drinking and shouting and smoking. Um, it turns out that Cynthia Rothrock is his partner and she's introduced by kicking a bloke in the face good um and is she um she's the drawing she's the drawing she's the drawing on oh. the cover of amazon prime that i didn't recognize and robert forster turns up as well as um fred williamson superior who is just he, is robert forster wearing blackface like in the delta force <laughs> no what he's doing is i'm like ambling around LA smoking fags and bumping into people at key points. <laughs> That's what he's doing in this film. Um, and the, the film is weird because it starts off and it's filmed as if you, kind of like Duel, where you, you you see this guy in the van and you see his hands moving and you see him editing this creepy sort of sex footage together. 
and you, you think, oh, this is going to be, you know, like night moves with Christophe Lambe, that you're going to, the reveal is going to be in the final reel. And it's all kind of sinister, and the music's very doomy and like single synth note. And those scenes are okay. It's everything outside of that. It's just basically Fred Williamson wandering around being unprofessionally irritating in his pants and socks. Um, yeah. But then it's like 30 minutes into the film, they think. Oh, bollocks to that, actually. And then it just reveals that this bloke who's killing these women is just this really, like, jocular, goofy bloke in his mid-30s with, like, an irritating, nerdy laugh. And he's being hassled by the mob to keep making these films. And he's sort of just having these back and forth with the mob's henchmen. And so all interest drains out of the film at the 30-minute mark. So you're just watching Fred Williamson wandering around in his pants people saying you're not you're not a very good policeman and him saying oh my dad was though <laughs> really account for much cynthia cynthia rothrock occasionally kick him out of the face robert forster smoking fags and turning up as if he's in a noir film and then the main stalker guy just like having this kind of <laughs> laugh at these mafia goons that are played for laughs so it's not really a hidden gem to be honest guys i, I, I it wasn't really a good film to, now that I think about it. So is the guy making the videos, is he effectively being blackmailed? He's being forced to make them by the gangsters. Well, it, it, they say at one point that the cuts to the mafia were obviously around a black onyx table in a really oddly lit warehouse saying, oh, look, you know, the stalker's gone too far. You know, we need to we need to we need to put a stop to him. And I thought, well, in all fairness, if you're the mafia, and if you think about all the forms of illegal income that the mafia have, what they probably wouldn't do is go to a serial killer and say, can you spend weeks videotaping women having sex and then releasing it, releasing those tapes to the newsrooms who play it on national TV to like really big up the fact that, you know, and then it turns out that like people are paying hundreds of dollars for these tapes on the black market. And I thought, you're the mafia? Like with the casinos and you're getting a bloke to kill one woman and flogging a VHS for a few quid. Surely, surely that's just like bad business. So um, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't hold up close scrutiny. Night vision. Night vision, right? Not night visions. Wes Craven's night visions. Don't no. think that for a second. Is that one? Is that one any good? Um, I haven't seen Night Visions. I, sh- I should now, really, just so I can then make the not that one joke again. Um, <laughs> oh, also, and, 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 and don't you worry, um, <laughs> there's a scene in this film where Fred Williamson just really clumsily says to Cynthia Rothrock, oh, can we go out to date and have sex if I can stop drinking for like a week? And she says, 90 days. And he gets it down to 60. And she's like, deal. And then, because she appears to be acting like she's in a different film. And it cuts to the next scene. And Fred Williamson is in his kegs in his apartment, so drunk that he's shooting his gun at the wall of the ceiling and he doesn't get arrested. They just say, sober up and come to work tomorrow. <laughs> if if I pulled out a gun now and started firing it out of my window, battered, I reckon I get into more trouble than saying, right, don't be late to work tomorrow. I know you've had a drink, but come on now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that sounds that sounds good. I'm gonna watch that. It's worth a watch. Okay. <laughs> could it could it be enjoyed if you were as drunk as Fred Williamson <laughs> was in that scene? Yeah. It's so funny as well because he's obviously like slightly out of shape and 
I don't know if it's something to do with his build, but his trousers are really high. And there's a scene where someone comes in and they're saying, come on now, stop drinking, go to work. And he's like, oh, my dad was a policeman. And he's on the couch and he's too drunk to stand up. But he's wearing like powder blue trousers with black patent leather shoes and a shirt tucked in. And there's a weird bulge around his crotch. But I think it's just where it's ruffled up because the trousers are like two or three sizes too big for him. But in Mm. length... So it's like the belt is above his stomach and it makes him look really weird, like the maternity trousers almost. And he's like kicking his legs. He's too pissed to stand up. And I thought, did you watch the dailies of this? And so, can we do that one again, actually? Because I look ridiculous. Can we fetch him a new pair of trousers, please? <laughs> yeah. You've just Jesus. reminded me that, um, what's his name in the whole nine, y- whole nine yards, uh, has some really, really big baggy trousers. Bruce Willis. As, uh, his trousers are quite high on that. I was thinking um, of Matthew, Matthew Perry. Perry. Yeah. Well, Matthew oh, Perry, really? I noticed really his... huge, billowy. Yeah. I think his wardrobe, his, his shirts are the same. If you look at his shirts, it's like the shoulders are like right down his Stoop. arms, and yeah. they're really and it's really billowy around. I think yeah. that seems to be deliberate to like make him look as weedy as possible, basically, because it, it just kind of. Hmm. He's not quite well. He's not as skinny as he was in certain episodes of Friends, for example. Um, so they don't want him to look in any way beefy. But I think the neck's a giveaway anyway. I don't think he's buff. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Shall I um, quickly run through Sonic the Hedgehog two? Because this is a cinema one. Quickly run through. Run as that. fast as I can. Have, have either of you seen the original? Yes. Uh, bizarrely not I do feel like I should watch them because I, I do like Jim Carrey but I for some reason yeah. I've watched these and I, I don't know why there's no reason because it's, it's on Netflix for free now yeah uh, yeah first one's worth a watch so <laughs> oh, we can stop there I think yeah. <laughs> so Robotnik in this one he's made his way back to Earth spoiler alert um, um, made his way back to Earth to retrieve the Chaos Emerald and claim ultimate power uh, he brings a henchman this time, Knuckles, uh, played by Idris Elba. And Sonic also has a buddy um, who's come along, Tails, who's voiced by the lady who did the voice in the games. Um, meanwhile, James Mar- Marsden is with his wife at her sister's wedding, uh, and they get brought into the mix as well. It all builds up to a very overlong final showdown with Robotnik and heavily telegraphs itself for future movies which probably will be coming uh so yeah the the end sequence is particularly big and loud and it does seem to go on forever um and it's one of a couple of quite boring sequences the other one being this really extended dance-off scene in siberia that was tedious but what my point is is that the first film was 99 minutes right so it's already breached the, the hour and a half mark, that one. This one's 122 minutes. It's like, that's an extra 23 minutes and you really feel them. It it commits two sequel crimes, which is overcomplicated, busy work plotting and also just blowing everything up bigger than the first one. So it it's not as good in that regard. I'd say Jim Car- Jim Carrey is 
he's exploited well, but not used well, if that makes sense. Like, his lines aren't actually very funny, but it's like they're pointing at the camera him and expecting him to say them in a funny way. So it can be funny, but the script isn't very funny. So it's like he's kind of doing the heavy lifting just in his facial expressions and stuff. Um, is, is that um, enough? Just about. But if you didn't, you know, if you if you weren't familiar with his previous work, you'd just be thinking he's not that funny. But because it's Jim Carrey, it's like, OK, it's like you can get more invested. Um, there's there's this whole undercooked subplot about um, James Marsden's sister-in-law being duped into a sham marriage, which I found actually a lot more funny and interesting than any of the stuff with the Chaos Emeralds and Sonic, to be honest. But anyway, then you've got Knuckles, right, who's Idris Elba's character. His accent is from everywhere, from, like, Norfolk to San Francisco. It's astonishing. It goes all over the shop. But anyway, his character is basically, I realised by the end, it's, it's basically Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, so he's basically, like, clueless about social etiquette and just aggressively blunt about everything. Tails is quite nicely voiced, but one thing that did come up in the film was that it doesn't, the film doesn't make it clear that he's, that Tails is a young boy. So uh, there's this awkward romantic tension between him and Sonic, if you're unaware. So it was quite an odd one when my wife turned to me and said, I was going to be a boy. Because she thought it was just going to be a love interest. So that was a little bit uncomfortable. Anyway, uh, I do, for all it's not very goodness, I did, I do admire its wholesomeness. And it's the same with the first film as well. But like in Sonic 2, like again and again, the, it, it would present a moment of uncynical friendship or affection. And it was like... It's like modern cinema has kind of programmed me to expect a snarky punchline, but it never came. So it was quite nice to have something as earnest in that regard. But overall, yeah, it's a really turgid step down from its from its predecessor. It's just about watchable, and I like the wholesomeness, but it's just too much scope and too much whiz bang filler bollocks that will. Well, it tested my patience. Maybe it won't test the patience of kids, I don't know. But I struggled. The length of it for kids mm. as well, you kind of like that's a bit of an endurance test, isn't it? Yeah, it seemed to be. Yeah, and there's a lot of plot going on. I don't know. I, I thought the first one was nice enough. It's it's an interesting like thing that you say about not having a snarky remark to undercut mm. any dramatic element, because I watched that film with um ryan reynolds ryan. in yes yes and and it has a bit at the end of that where it's like a father-son moment thing that they didn't undercut with a joke and it was like and it's one of those bits where you think oh that's, that's weirdly affecting in this film has <laughs> been complete surface kind of trash and uh, they should do it more often i know yeah, yeah. especially Ryan Reynolds. What they should do is just so they say, Ryan Reynolds, you can write this entire script. What we're going to do is just black out the final line of every paragraph of dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I I have got um 
I've got two things related to the Savalas that I want to go through really quickly, and then I've got two other films, if we can, depending on how long we're going to power on. Can I quickly do the Savalas ones? Sure. So the first thing I watched, and it was from an interview with Guy Tori on the Mark Maron podcast, is Fat Tuesdays, the era of hip-hop comedy, um, which is on Amazon Prime. And I, I just I got into this because Guy Tori just seemed like such a really genuine man with, with a real passion for for fat tuesdays which was a night he held in the comedy store in um los angeles back in the early 90s that effectively launched the careers of uh people like chris tucker um uh, cedric the entertainer bernie mac a, a lot a lot of uh, comedians that like rocked up in a lot of films at that time and i didn't realize that guy tory is the person that especially because he comes from a comedy background the person that ed norton befriends in american history x in the prison Oh, really? uh, the kind of twist is yeah so yeah i was really intrigued by that um and it's just three episodes and they're 45 minutes long and i've got to say this there was something about this that was so moorish that when i found out that it was only three episodes i was i was actually gutted i thought i would have liked this to be like eight episodes long they're 45 minutes so you can get through them all in you know just over two hours but it, it, it's this uh, documentary that is just harking back to this key point for black comedy in early 90s America, where they were given a small room in the comedy store when the comedy store was on its ass um, in, in terms of the, the main room. And it just got so big that they took over and you had people like Snoop Dogg, who is in this documentary. He probably went there once or twice. He is smoking in this he does not mind smoking he does not mind smoking in this um and yeah it's just it's just a really celebratory tone to it how everyone is um that it's full of archival footage that is quite well shot and they've done a pretty good job with the remastering of the sound as well because clearly some is filmed from the audience and all of the all of the um comedy is is really clear um definitely worth a goosey regardless of whether you like that style of comedy on it. It's weird actually because it's obviously because of the fact that there was just a, they had no outlet for that comedy in the nineties. But a lot of a lot of it is very similar to, <laughs> but uh, presented with more energy than like seventies British comedy because it's all yeah. Your mama basically boils down to my mother-in-law. Really, <laughs> so it's not even my kind of comedy, but it's the energy of the delivery and just how the audience are lapping it up and having such a good time it makes it quite infectious. The centerpiece of this for me was Bernie Mac, um, th- because there was there was one night where apparently um, Chris Tucker went on first and like blew the audience away and everyone was like went completely bonkers for him, and then another com- comedian went on called Bill something <clears throat> and totally bombed and took the energy out Close of the room. Me. <laughs> no, Forsyth, um, and he and he uh, went on and like took the engine out of the room, and Bernie Mac had travelled across from wherever it was, and he was determined for the night to go his way. And I've seen this clip. If you if you go on YouTube and type in Bernie Mac, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. It is it's a funny six or seven minute standard routine anyway. But knowing the context of how the the club was dead. And it was like, well, that's it pretty much. This is going to be depressing. Bernie Mac comes down and prefaces every joke with, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. And then punctuates it with like a, like a hip hop scratch. And there's such an energy. And, and it, the, seeing him, how he comes down and wins the crowd over is like a masterclass in entertainment. Like how he completely worked the room. And, I, and it was, I got goosebumps thinking about it. It was such, it's like the perfect six or seven minutes of comedy on his trousers. <laughs> 
Whew. <laughs> 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 he's skin tight. <laughs> he, he, he did not buy them from Tesco. <laughs> he did not buy them from Tesco. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth a goosey. Um, and really quickly as well, I watched From Bedrooms to Billions, um, which is about the rise of the 8-bit... Um, the yeah, I've had my eye on this one. ...computer industry. The... the, the I'll do this really quickly. I've watched a lot of documentaries from a lot of different people about about the birth of like British computing. Quite frankly, I've seen a lot of them, and this is good if you have if you have an interest in it. But it's effectively just a load of talking heads, and it's over two hours long. Oof. And if you have to have a real vested interest in this, but the the crossover problem for me was if you've got a vested interest in it by now, 2022, you would have known all this information from other avenues. Mm. So it's very much just like, okay, you're looking at all these people like Peter Molyneux, Jazz Rignall yeah. talking about this. And you think oh, I've kind of heard all this before. It's just all. Yes. In one place. That, is um, a, that is an issue, isn't it? With these sorts of things in 2014, 20, whenever it was, finance this would have been solid gold now with with the youtubers and stuff it's kind of a nice almost a, a relic of its time so um yeah it, it's good if you're like oh yeah i remember the commodore 64 you you probably watch it and get bored after an hour um yeah. if you're like me you get bored after an hour but then think i oh, no, i do really like it and then watch it for two hours <laughs> yeah. you've really got to do something special with that sort of thing, I mean, to raise it above the YouTube videos that just have loads of talking head interviews interspersed with shots yeah. of the games. It, there's just there's just something about rich blokes in their fifties and sixties with bags under their eyes bigger than Carrie from <laughs> Sex and the City chucks in a taxi in a room after a binge in New York, saying. Oh, you were just in our bedrooms. We were just just writing games. And what was happening? You're like, yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Need there does need to be an angle. I like. I think the best like gaming documentaries tend to be quite focused. Like I I love um, King King of Kong. Is it called King of Kong? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that one because it's quite specifically about one rivalry, but it also encapsulates um a lot of other themes into it so but yeah if you want kind of just straight up information something like the gaming historian on youtube is good for that yeah, stuff isn't it absolutely so, yeah he's really the best because he doesn't bring humor into it which is yeah. problematic really quickly as well just because uh, like off topic with with game series i've been doing a lot of 8-bit stuff um at the moment and i watched from bedrooms to billions and then one night i was settling my son down to sleep and i've recently bought um a, a thing called Free 64, which is a, a fanzine made by Commodore 64 enthusiasts. So, but, and it was dated back in 2018 when Ben Daglish, who did a lot of beautiful music for the Commodore 64, died. And I was settling my son down and I thought, I just watched From Bedrooms to Billions and I was a bit underwhelmed. So I chucked on um, this interview with him. And I just wanted to explain to you <laughs> this, because this genuinely blew my mind. How how drums were made on the Commodore 64, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Ben Deglish, who's this. He passed away in 2018 from lung cancer, and he's this really infectious northerner with like a real, real skill. All of the drums, if you think about like the hi hat, the snare, the bass drum, and like the toms and whatever, and the ride cymbal, like a full drum kit, were taken from the SID chip on the Commodore 64 from a single track of white noise of absolute static. So he, he said 
So you had the Commodore 64, you had four channels on the SID chip, and one of the tracks was... And he said, well, obviously I listened to that. I thought, well, that's the drum kit. And I thought, <laughs> why? Obviously. So, but he just, and he just really quickly explains is like how, how they manipulate this hardware. To, so he's like, you know, the, so, the, you know, it's the, the is just a brief bit of static with like the, um, <laughs> this sort of right ramped up. The snare that is just static cut off at of both ends. The bass drum is static drop down. And I thought, that's phenomenal. Like, how can you how can you be given this limited piece of kit and think I'll get a full drum kit out of that? And a keyboard's all over the top. <laughs> so yeah, I was from that like ten minute clip of Ben Deglish from like whenever it was done in two thousand eleven. I I felt like I learned more than from from Bedroom Civilian. So I suppose my tie on is if if you have an interest in this and you want to know more about it, it's more like like Rupert just said something on a more focused topic. It's just listen to anything Ben Daglish did because he was a genuine genius. Where is where are these documentaries available? From Bedroom Civilians was on Amazon Prime and I paid cash money for it, three pounds. And anything Ben Daglish is um, just on YouTube. Just type in Ben Daglish interview. And that's Daglish, like D-A-G-L-I-S-H. Okay. Okay. So save your money and watch the stuff for free. Yeah. And listen to someone explain how they get a drum kit out of just a 2005 film starring Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if all those facts are right. <laughs> I think that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I talk about Krull? Please. Well, of course. Yeah. Oh, come on. You've been talking about Krull for 30 years. I have as well. Well, I um, I watched this film. <laughs> this is uh, made in 1983. Uh, it's a sort of fantasy sci-fi really just fantasy um directed by peter yates who's probably best known for bullet in the 60s uh yeah crawl it though it flopped hard on release and has like a 32 percent rotten tomatoes rating so i don't know how excited you are at this point um so right the setting is that the beast the the big bad guy his fortress is moving around the world of krull and his slayers are causing havoc everywhere and this beast kidnaps the bride of ken marshall obviously and who's a king um uh, so that the beast can fulfill some kind of a prophecy or something like that anyway so ken marshall survives the battle but his wife has been his queen has been kidnapped. So he sets out into the world of Kral with the help of a, an old man, Seer, and an ever-growing band of misfits, including Liam Neeson and Todd Carty, uh, and various high fantasy stereotypes to go and storm the fortress and rescue his bride. He, he does it with the help of a weapon called the glaive, by the way, which is totally impractical. If you imagine, like, it's the, mo- it's the most dangerous weapon to the user I've it's, ever encountered. It's more likely to hurt you than anyone else. And he barely uses it. He does use it towards the end. That's one thing, one of many things that doesn't make sense about this movie. He's told near the start, he's about to lob it, right? And the old man goes, oh, you know, don't use it right now. You'll, you'll know when you need to use it. 
And it's never explained why that is. Why not use it all the time? Because it would clearly just kick, just annihilate anyone. So he's just arbitrarily told, don't use it anyway. So it's a combination of <laughs> old fashioned like Hollywood adventure. Here, and, here's a weapon, but don't use it until yeah. there's a moment when you have to use it. And then when you do finally step. use it, it, it gets stuck and you can't get it back anyway. Yeah, but you'll lean over it and you'll tense and thrust your hand towards it, trying to use telekinesis. Not going to work! It doesn't He is desperate <laughs> to get it back. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a combination of old-fashioned Hollywood adventure and the surreal fantasy impulses of the 80s. Because all of the Beast Fortress stuff is really probably weird and incomprehensible. And yet it's got this Errol Flynn-style swashbuckling style of swordplay. And there's even one moment where Ken Marshall swings across the room, for God's sake. And it's got these sci-fi elements for no apparent reason. Well, there is a reason, because it's because of Star Wars. That's literally it. There's no reason for there to be any like sci-fi element in it at all. It's got really, really lovely James Horner score, from probably from James Horner's best period, actually, because this was just after Wrath of Khan and just before Aliens, so it's that period. Oh, Ken God. Marshall, let's talk about Ken Marshall. He went on to, I think he was in some... Uh, Star Trek series of some sort, but anyway, Ken Marshall. If I think if he'd been ten years younger and possibly an unbearded or definitely unbearded, then I think Kroll might be regarded in the same way as say like Labyrinth or Dark Crystal or Legend in the way they've become cults. But he does look a bit dad-like, unfortunately. And, and to be honest, as far as his character goes, there's not much of an arc either. He's basically pretty confident and capable from the start and doesn't actually grow or change significantly. You get some amusing comic relief from this wizard guy called Ergo the Magnificent, who's actually funny because his act is basically in the tradition of something like Monty Python, so that's nice. There's a quite a nice soulful performance by Freddie Jones as the old man. And then you've got this Cyclops character who's... I always thought it was pretty cool. He's a very sad character, but he's because he's cursed with the knowledge of his own time and manner of death. So it's quite a cool idea. So that's a nice one. Um, but there's nothing really new in terms of the archetypes. So you've got like the hero, the mentor, the magician, the, the outlaw. And, and the storytelling is pretty linear and nonsensical, to be honest. It's like they have to achieve something, but then they fail. But suddenly there's an alternative route. It's like, OK, you're just making this up as you go along, really, aren't you? But the, the script is very fast moving and efficient. It doesn't dwell or unnecessarily embellish anything. And I did think to myself, Peter Jackson, maybe you should take note. But um, but on but on that note as well, perhaps it's too efficient because there's loads of it that's just unexplained, like like the whole thing about not using the glaive all the time. It because, just purely because it would mince all the enemies. Um, but is he, is he meant to learn like a moral lesson or something that it's not um, good to massacre everyone you meet? No, because there are crucial moments throughout the story where they are confronted by slayers and stuff. And literally, they're lucky to get out alive. In fact, some people just die. And it's like, well, if he'd used the glaive on in these situations, he would have just been able to kill them before killed any of their people so anyway <laughs> the, i think the budget was fairly high for this the special effects aren't that special now obviously but they're not they're functional they're not distractingly bad and there's a good giant spider sequence which is pretty cool with a stop motion 
glass spider thing, which is quite creepy. Uh, there's nice scenery. There's some pretty good sets and some good framing. It's it's a handsome movie, I'd say. And I do like how it's got quite it's got high stakes. Like the like key characters are pretty regularly killed off, and in quite nasty ways. Um, so yeah, some pretty gross deaths in it. So that's yeah, because Todd Carty slips on a sander, doesn't he? Yes. And his face gets sanded off, which then goes in Bernard Breslau's mouth and he chokes to death. Yeah, yeah, Todd Carty lands on the sander and then just transforms into Robbie Coltrane. (laughs) When when is Todd Carty going to get his late in life action movie career resurgence like Liam Neeson? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, right. It's about time, isn't it? It is time. I mean, can he have a resurgence if he hadn't had a surgence? I'm assuming, I'm assuming that Todd Carty's here is a memory only held amongst his family in the form of photographs now. I would imagine so. Um, I'm, yes. I'm willing to bet his yeah his IMDb profile picture is him much younger than he is now. I'm just going to put it out there and guess that. Um, right, yeah. And yeah, so although it's got some, you know, key characters are killed off... The, the problem is, is that the whole film kind of hinges on this romance, the supposed romance between Ken Marshall and this woman he's trying to rescue. But A, you see them together for about five seconds before she's kidnapped. So you don't get any kind of sense of that they're in love. But also it's just clearly just an arranged marriage as well. So it's like that kind of undermines it quite a bit as well. But overall, yes, as a film, it it holds up pretty well. It passes a nostalgia test. And especially if you overlook the inconsistencies in the script, because it, it does look good and it sounds good and it breezes by with some good pace and good variety. So I think Kral is still, still just about holds up. Um, nice. <clears throat> are, are we willing to go like five or 10 minutes over today? I am. Yeah. You, Can I just, can I just say on a slight side note, relating to Bruce Willis, because I rewatched um, G.I. Joe Retribution. Is it the one that he's in? Oh, yeah. Um, and and there's you just reminded me that there's a bit in that where something terrible happens and the heroes do nothing to prevent it. And yet, like, it's sort of passed off as a victory at the end of the film. Do you remember the film at all? Anyway, I have not seen this, no. It's like the bad guys launch like a huge needle from space into London and it causes a massive shockwave that obliterates like all of central London. Literally, like you see the, the London Eye fall over and, and parts uh, of Oxfordshire. Yeah, the, the like Big Ben collapses and that. millions dead. And and then at the end of the film, they're all like high fiving and that because they, they killed the bad guys, but they're like, no, no, it wasn't a victory, guys. Millions <laughs> upon millions of people died on your watch. <laughs> I think the last time I had a feeling that I was when I watched Pacific Rim. I think it was the last episode. And when when they fly up into space and um, what's his name, Charles Sandham goes, oh, that's us, fuck then. That's us dead. And then the newbie says, oh, what about the sword? And then they, they just <laughs> use the sword to cut that thing in half and it instantly kills it. And as they're falling, you don't see it. But I bet she was just saying, actually, why don't we just like do this for everything? 
Why don't we just yeah, use and as save gold? millions and millions? Yeah, it's just such a lot of bollocks. If they had like a scene after that where they go in with the sword straight away and the monster like snapped it off, and you go, oh, okay, it's 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 temperamental or something. Right. Yeah. No. 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 I, it, to, to be honest, right? When I watched that film, I, I honestly thought when that happened with the sword, I thought this must be like a meme or something because that's so clear that that they just well, what about the sword? And he's like, oh yeah, well this expert of decades of using these machines is like, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about one of the two weapons at my disposal. <laughs> Asshole. Um, I I watched two films. One recommended by I'll do this one first actually, if that's cool. Uh, recommended by our uh, listener Jimmy Automatic, and he said, "Oh, have you have you seen all the old knives? Apparently, it's like a John Le Carre novel." And I was like, "Well, no, but I'm a bottle of wine in, so what's going on now?" And I put it on, and it stars Chris Pine, and I, I used to say Tandy, but it's Tandy Way Newton, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Jonathan Price, big names. One mm-hmm. of those people I fancy. Chris Pine. No, and that is. The, and do you know what? Using Chris Pine's joke is is the problem with this film. So the the problem is that well, the, the film is rather that um, they at the start we see this terrorist plot where uh, a a plane is caused to crash effectively, and it's all smoke and mirrors of how Chris Pine nine years on is told to go back by Lawrence Fishburne and investigate because they think something was up with this crash and Tandaway Newton is his ex-lover that he hasn't been in contact with. Jonathan Price was her boss and they're all, they're all getting together um, and he is, sorry, I'm going to cough. Oh, sorry about that. So um, Chris Pine is traveling effectively across Europe and the Americas to, to meet up with um Jonathan Price and Tandaway Newton to find out who the mole was that leaked information that caused this terrorist act. And it's all very stylishly lit. And um, there's that sort of sexual tension between him and Tandaway Newton. Jonathan Price is amazing. He only rocks up for a few minutes, but he, he, makes, a, he makes a real impression. Uh, and it's... I can see why the John Le Carre... Um, comparisons are there but the problem in this film really lies with chris pine in that i don't believe he can act i i don't i've only ever seen him in the uh, star trek film but there's something about his weird like white bright-eyed ridiculously haired ken doll appearance that means he just always looks like a caricature that when the camera cuts to him it looks like something from <clears throat> like um what was that what did Sasha Baron Cohen used to do Ali or D Ali G. Or, Ali G Ali G he looks like an Ali G character he He's does sat- look a bit like a waxwork uh, I do yeah. know what I mean and, and slightly so, melting one so yeah it's like oh this is him nine years ago when this all kicked off and then it cuts back to him now and he's a little, you know, he's only 41 in real life. So they've obviously sort of aged him slightly, which makes him look even more ridiculous. So he's got these like thick black lines on his forehead and he's trying to be seductive with Tandaway Newton at the same time as interrogating her. And he can't really pull off either because he's too bushy of eyebrow, wide of eye and luxurious of hair. It always looks like every time it cuts back, it's a spoof of the film I'm watching. 
I know. Really, you just need Timothy Spall in that role, don't you? <laughs> yeah, genuinely, you need or Jonathan Price, yeah, or someone who was a bit more like rundown and like, oh yeah, here we are. Let's get this sorted then. But and then there's this extended, protracted sex scene, with, and it, and it, it, what reminded me of this film was you said earlier on that um, it, it 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 does this whole thing where there's like this sex scene, and you think I don't. The whole thing that's driving the spine of this film, this relationship with Chris Pine and Tandaway Newton, you basically just seem like people who met up for a shag a few times. Mm. So I'm like the, the weight of what is resting on the narrative, I'm really not getting as a viewer because you, I, I'm not seeing it. You basically just used to bonk and then apparently had nothing else in common. So. You should be comparing this film to Crawl. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, like I'll say this without spoilers, but the film—we've um, all been in meetings, haven't we? We've all. Yeah, I can actually do this without even naming characters, right? Anyone who's ever had an office job has been in a meeting, and regardless of the meeting, however low stakes, you know when someone stands out, leaves the meeting, and then comes back in a few minutes later. If if six months down the line someone said, oh, did so-and-so just walk out and come back at the same time that mysterious phone call was at the terrace, you'd say, yeah, actually, you know, of the ten of us in that meeting, one of us remembers this person leaving and coming back in. And that is, like, that is what this whole film rests on. Someone whistling nonchalantly out of a room and then coming back in. And I just thought, so you've got this low-stakes ridiculous relationship between two characters and then it all boils down to the big reveal when you when you you know pull the cloth away from the table it's just some bloke walking out of a room and looking up nonchalantly nah doesn't work so uh and he looks preposterous as an actor i don't know when chris pine won't look preposterous as an actor have you have you ever seen actually he looks preposterous in that too but was it smoking aces or something where he plays like a punk and he, he's properly sort of shaved his is head that, and is that the like one with state. Jeremy Piven in it? Yeah. Or the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one you mean. Yeah. I don't even remember him in that. Well, he looks quite different. So maybe this could be the tonic of, for yeah. you. There's just something about it. He just looks, he looks like you're watching like a satire of the film you're watching. There's something about his face that doesn't sit right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right. Uh, we got time for one more? We've got time for two more, Rupert. <laughs> okay. All right. So how about um, how about I finish off with an oldie, a relatively oldie, because I was basically I was going back through films I remember from my youth and, and doing the nostalgia test on them. Nice. I think it all came out of the, off the back of watching Arachnophobia. I did crawl. That was fine. So I decided to watch Planes, Trains and Automobiles because this was on Netflix. Good. I remember this is one that I watched a lot and I was wondering if it was funny still. So in this film, Steve Martin is trying to get back to his family for Thanksgiving. But flights are cancelled, etc. So that ain't happening anytime soon. He meets John Candy, who's this desperately irritating shower curtain hook salesman who basically attaches himself to him and Steve Martin can't shake him. Um, and when each new disaster strikes, John Candy is there to kind of save the day whilst also really annoying him. Uh, it's, it's the quintessential odd couple comedy, I suppose. 
it's interesting that Steve Martin plays very much the straight man in this, given his roots and stuff like the jerk and things. But but then in this, he, he, when he does get angry, he does become a bit of an unpleasant, just rude man. Um, not that funny as such. Um, he's just quite nasty to people. But anyway, yes, there is a fair amount of dated humour in it as well. Like, there's this whole like rather homophobic motel scene um but okay i i like there was a there's a scene where he meets like a hick who makes this comment about his wife being so strong that the baby came out sideways and she didn't even scream that bit was quite funny um but i did find that like post dumb and dumber because it's essentially a road movie but it's a post dumb and dumber it does feel a little bit sluggish and a bit ungenerous with its gag rate but then I realised that it's not really about the gag rate because this is a John Hughes comedy, of course. So really it's about occasionally amusing set pieces and occasional visual jokes leading to a kind of predictable, kind of poignant, kind of sentimental conclusion. And I think John Hughes' blend of like cartoon slapstick, mild observational humour and sentimental drama gets a bit grating to be honest and i think that another steve martin film parenthood that we talked about before i think that got the the bittersweet balance a bit more right to be honest um yeah so this is obviously you know this being a road movie from the 80s it's uh it's very analog i don't it wouldn't work in today's world although amazingly they are remaking it with the notorious Will Smith and Kevin Hart. So we'll see how they handle all that. Well, yeah, or maybe they won't make it. <laughs> I'm wondering, I don't know. Um, yeah, so, oh, it's got this awful, awful music, terrible musical score, which is like a load of like popular rock songs that you've kind of heard before, but covered with like synth instruments. So it just sounds terrible. Uh, yes. So overall, like a lot of comedy from the past, it hasn't really dated very well. And I'd say that John Hughes and both the actors have done better work, to be honest. I don't I, really I, feel it's held up too well. I have to say that um, with with Plane, Trains and Automobiles, my overriding memory of it um, is, you know, you have... But when he gets out of the shower? No, 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 no. It's, um, <laughs> it's just how monumentally sound the ending is. It's, where yeah. where he, they go, he goes back and he realizes his wife's died and he's spoiler yeah. alert and he's just like oh yeah don't worry about me and then he takes him home and then it opens and the family welcome him and he does this really weird sort of sigh where it's like oh this is cool but he's still got a dead <laughs> wife and he still has to go back to his awful life doesn't he the next day and it, it's this it's probably one of the saddest endings to a film i could think of and that yeah. that's what really rubs me oh not rubs me the wrong way but like when i'm watching the film at the sort of laughs that build up that are there it's like you know the buddy comedy stuff it's yeah. all fine but then I'm, I'm thinking this builds up to like one of the saddest endings of the decade so i think it is a bit of an issue for its rewatchability to be honest i think if you'd watched that I mean, I can't remember what it's like first time I watched it, but I think if you watch that not knowing how it would turn out, then it would probably work better, actually, because the problem is, is that because you know the ending now, um, 
and anyone listening to this now knows the ending but if you know the ending while you're watching it it's like all of the kind of knockabout slapstick comedy and it's it's now weighted yeah Yeah. all the banter and stuff is just really heavily like tainted by the knowledge that it's just going to be you're just going to be crushed at the end of it yeah so it's that it's actually a dramedy. No, no, I, I I do really feel that. I I feel like it's um and it's the it's the weird. Obviously, it's the eighties, so they freeze frame the ending, Dude. and they freeze frame it on the saddest frame of the film, <laughs> where it, it's like his mouth is smiling, but his eyes aren't. As he's like, oh, this is this is what would have happened if my wife had survived. <laughs> it is. I, yes. Like John Hughes had a taste for that stuff, didn't he? Because I remember like. I remember that film quite well from from my youth. And again, yeah, the melancholy element just I didn't didn't appreciate that. And then there's things like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is for my young brain like one of the best films I'd ever seen. And then mm. there's that whole stretch where Cameron is like gets depressed and then he's like falls in the swimming pool and he kicks in the car and all that stuff. And he's like, what? Where this was? Where fun. did this come from? <laughs> Dark. Just get yeah. back on with it. There's, we don't need all this stuff. We were having fun, and now you've made us depressed. Yeah, I think maybe that's why, like something like the Breakfast Club is. He's. I prefer stuff like that because it's not really even presenting itself as a wacky comedy. I mean, I suppose there are comedic elements, but it's definitely much more weighted towards being a teen drama, which I think works better for mm. me terms of his tone because he is a sentimentalist anyway i'm gonna end can i do one more sure that's cool yeah. <clears throat> um, i i wasn't gonna talk about this tonight i was gonna wait till the next full episode but um i i, I watched this film and it's a new film watched on netflix uh two days ago and i turned to faye and said do you know what i was taken down many paths during this film but i ultimately really really enjoyed it and she said, yeah. And, and I thought it was the kind of film that she would get bored with. And she said, no, I really like that. And I went online and it appears a few people have watched it and hated it and expected more from it or expected a different path from it. And I just want to put those people straight and correct them. <clears throat> um, this is a film called Windfall, starring Lily Collins, Jesse Plemons and Jason Siegel. Um, and it's I've got a feeling from my memory of the production credits that it was also financed by them so it's obviously a passion project recorded throughout lockdown which is why there's only three actors in the film and I, is it called host that that one that was like a five-star horror amazing um lockdown horror movie i think it's called host but either way that was a good lockdown film this is just a good film regardless and it's going to be a little bit tough to talk about that spoilers, but but effectively what Wikipedia says about this film is that Jason Siegel turns up at Jesse Plemons house and uh, Jesse Plemons wife is played by Lily Collins. <clears throat> uh, and it, I thought it was in like France or something, but it's in this kind of Mediterranean sort of um, like orange grove uh, sort of area. And he's just extorted him for money. But Jesse Plemons is a billionaire, and I think a lot of people expected to come into the film and think that it would be about the working man against a tech billionaire and that sort of class divide. 
and mm. the and a difference in, um, in 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 sort of mental approach to it. But it's not about that. What it really is is just a, a basically a play, just a three man play, um, and and about the interaction. And if you if you go into this film, Windfall, just thinking I'm going to watch three actors who are good actors doing good acting, then you'll come away thinking good. Apart from the last ten minutes, admittedly, mm. uh, because I was watching it and it takes you down a lot of different paths through there. I'm going to try and be as oblique as possible here, but like it takes you in a lot of different paths and it, it, it leads up to various possible set pieces and motives and permutations of the plot. And then it sort of swaps them aside in like a really nice, uh, quite refreshing way. But but then you're watching it and I realized, and I've had this with a few films that you think, yes, I'm really enjoying how you're sort of subverting my expectations, but this has to come to a denouement. <laughs> this has to like end at some point. And the way it does end is like, okay, yes, that's fine. But I wish, I wish you'd have gone a slightly different route in the last 10, 15 minutes. But I think it's the best film I've seen these people in because Jason Siegel has never been on my radar. Jesse Plemons is amazing. Um, yes. Is, is key. And then you've got Lily Collins who has always been really uh, unbelievable as the character she's cast as like a district attorney. But in this, I don't know if it's the makeup or the, well, actually face it, it's the makeup on the hair that makes her look her actual age. So you, you can, you can believe the situation she's in and where she comes from. I really like this. I was really drawn to this as a as a sort of um, comedic. It's a dramedy, let's call it what it is. Um, but just don't go in there expecting to for the answers to big questions. It, it is what it is. It's a it's effectively a, a three man play, and I was completely all over it. I watched yeah, this too, and I, I, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I, I think I wouldn't go so far as to say my what I took from it was rather than it being a passion project that they chipped in some money to just make it happen because they were on lockdown and there's nothing else going on and they've got money to spare kind of thing and it's pretty mm. cheap um but it was yeah it doesn't feel there's scenes where you think this probably they just set the camera up and let them freewheel here a little bit but it's also intricate enough in the right places that it doesn't feel entirely improvised I I I got to say it's interesting you should say that because um I thought the film was far longer because it's an hour and 32 and I thought it was far longer than that but I, but I think it was um the, the sort of boring lengthy scenes where they're just like sort of in awkward situations and nothing much is happening I assumed that was used to bring us as viewers into feeling their boredom in the situation they're in the kind of mm. Mm, that's that's what I took from yeah. it yeah and it it does play like you, yeah your expectations it's kind of neatly plays with that where it's quite an, a non-antagonistic scenario he's not like clubbing him around the head or with the gun and you know that kind of thing he's like kind of he's like i don't really want to be doing this you don't really want to be here but but this is where we, we get are some money that <laughs> we're just gonna have to jump through some hoops all right guys kind of thing and they don't really need the money they don't really care it's like so yeah what, what, it sounds anti-dramatic, but at the same time, it kind of gives it a, a fresher feel. What was your takeaway from the ending? I, I wasn't mad on it either. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, at least it's 
kind of got a twist. I think I was expecting or waiting for a kind of a twist, but I'm not sure I bought it particularly. I don't know. Yeah, but I can't can't say too much. I will watch this because I do like Jesse Plums especially. I think he reminds me of not just looks, but just kind of the choices he makes. It reminds me a bit of Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's got, he's obviously got, he's choosing some interesting projects. He was really good in Power of the Dog. Uh, but yeah, he's been good in everything. So what was that one he was in? Um, that weird, uh, I'm thinking of ending things, that strange Charlie Kaufman one as well. With Jesse Buckley, yeah, that's where he, yeah. cause I, I saw him mm. in a TV in the one of Black Mirror episodes, yeah. and then I, and then I saw him in that. And thinking of anything, I liked it probably more than Sub, but um, it, it, it was more his perform. There's something about him that's I don't know. He just seems like he's like a master of his craft. He almost. Yeah. He's like, only 34 I, I, as well. I feel like I don't. Un- I feel like I don't understand enough about acting to really appreciate what he does. Right. Yeah. I, we yeah. affectionately refer to him as Fat Damon in our house because he looks like a sort of a slightly more overweight Matt Damon. <laughs> he does actually. Yeah. Is that? Is, I know where you live. It's fifteen politically correct roads. <laughs> it's usually between the walls of our house, and now I've just said it on a podcast. But luckily, I'm using a pseudonym, so I'll be fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Um, that is that is episode fifty-two, and uh, I suppose the, the, there's two things left to do: there's the, the inevitable orchestra, and also uh, the films of the week. I'm, I think for for me, the film of the week for me is is Windfall, and my film of the week in terms of uh, Bruce Willis's career. I like a lot. I like a lot of his films. I love Die Hard, um, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of movies that stand up for me. But The Last Boy Scout. And I thank Laszlo Buckets for pointing out that it's because it's part of that Shane Black trilogy of um, uh, The Last Boy Scout, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is another of my favourite films, and then The Nice Guys. is That's the perfect evening for me, quite frankly. Uh, so, yeah, Windfall and The Last Boy Scout. What about, uh, we'll, we'll go to the guest first. What about you, Laszlo? Well, I'm going to pair up Bruce Willis and films that I've watched recently and say Motherless Brooklyn is the film I've enjoyed the most in the last few weeks. Oh, nice. And Rupert? Um, I, I, I watched some twaddle. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, um, so of the ones I mentioned, I, yes, the whole nine yards, I enjoyed that more, much more than I thought I would. Uh, and it shows... It shows Bruce Willis's quality, but also it shows how Matthew Perry could have been a big star. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you should say that because I watched the recent Friends reunion. Faye had it on like Now TV or whatever. I, I haven't brought myself to watch. It, I think. No, I, wa- I watched. I watched. No, it's not. It's it's depressing on his account because yes. you know it's not. You know, I know we take the piss about his weight gain and weight loss, but. I mean, my memory of Matthew Perry is like Friends and the whole nine yards, yeah. three to tango, obviously, with Nev Campbell. But but with, with with the whole nine yards, it's like, oh, my God, this is not only a, a, like a person I like doing a form of comedy I like that isn't done enough. It just never. And then, of course, from that, you had um, every time it was Matthew Perry and something, it was like whatever, you know, 
all these failed pilots and stuff mm. that seemed mm. like interesting ideas that didn't go anywhere. And I just feel like, oh, do you know what? I would have wouldn't have minded it being used to like its full potential, but um, yeah. so it was okay. Bless him. Uh, so the Arkansas for last mm. week was Eva Mendes to Donald Pleasance. So naturally, the Arkansas for this week is Liza Minnelli to Bernard Breslau. No, it's not. It's not that at all. <laughs> it's the Natasha Hensbridge. I've got that in a one step over. <laughs> you were already, already texting me. Um, so the Arkansas Star for this week is Natasha Henstrich to John Candy. And if you want to uh, email in, it's the men who talk at outlook.com. Excellent. That's a good one. I've got my thinking cap on. Right. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. I got to say as well, I'm just just as I'm closing on my screens now. When I was looking at um, when I watched Night Vision with not that one with Cynthia Rothrock and Fred Williams, because I was expecting like some moody '90s, you know, LA dark thriller. The moment Cynthia Rothrock turned up, I just went off oh, for fuck's sake because I knew there was going to be kicking. So uh, yeah, I just yeah, just looking at the title of it now, and I just remember the moment I thought, oh yeah, Jesus, it's one of those, is it? Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's all. A- a- any final words or um, nothing really, but other than to say thank you, Laszlo, for your input today and for guesting thank on our you Bruce for special. Me. I'm always here to talk about Bruce Willis. We didn't even mention his penis, but right. for another time, perhaps. Maybe we have a, a whole episode dedicated to his penis. <laughs> In the colour of night. I feel like I need to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> there is, he, just, he just thrust his way into that film. <laughs> Thrusting into the frame. Right, okay. Well, farewell. Farewell. And, yeah, all my love. I, I do have a final joke, actually. All right. Yeah. Um, what do you get when you cross... Haley Joel Osment's character in The Sixth Sense with uh, the Cyclops in Krull. Um, I can't remember what his character's called. Go on. Cole Slaw. <laughs>